had a friend a couple of years ago traveling in uh, Southeast Asia, some of the same places I've traveled in my journeys from Thailand, and she was looking for a real uh, peaceful time away from her stressful life in the city, and uh, she believed that, you know, of course, getting away to Thailand, no uh, work responsibilities, no uh, deadlines, no uh, colleagues constantly seeking her attention, would uh, create the causes and conditions that allow her to relax. So she gets to these wonderful, beautiful, remote island in off Thailand, probably Khao Tao or something like that, and uh, she gets there and she writes that her brain was just as condemning and unhappy as if she was back in the States. Every hotel, every restaurant she chose, every scooter rental she went to, every beach she sought out, her brain would immediately, her mind would immediately inform her, was the wrong choice. There was always a better scooter rental, a better, you know, hostel to stay at, a better uh, place to eat. Now, of course, this could just be taken as a very simplistic, wherever you go, there you go to type of moral, but that's not really what I'm getting at. It really is, though, and uh, I'm trying to use it as a model of just how persistent our inner critic, the harsh self-talk in the mind can be, that inner prattler, which, for me, for the last 20 years has... Uh, first thing in the morning always informed me that I'm bald. So first thing I was you think I would get that by now? <laughs> that I'm bald and I have a big Jewish nose and whatever. You know, that's what my brain tells me. That's the first thing it says to me every day. <laughs> so the Dharma teaches us to unpack suffering and uh, when this happens it could be uh, broken down into a number of different experiences there's obviously uh, and I'll talk a little bit about this later there's generally beneath self-talk whenever the the mind flares up with self-criticism it's a distraction from some self from some somatic felt state in the body that's conveying uh, something uh, akin to feelings of disconnection or uh, worry about our relationships. Udaka is the what the Buddha calls the monkey mind that swings from one topic to another. And that's a um, historical residue of the fact that our midbrains, amygdalas, are set at far too hypervigilant uh, level for our current survival status. And so we tend to be prone to thoughts that look around for fault or blame or something that's wrong, dangerous threats. But mostly I'm talking about papancha, which is the Buddha's word for all the chatter that fills up the mind. And generally, the Buddha noted, if you want to start up the inner chatterer in the brain, there's nothing more efficient than thinking about yourself 
and thinking about how you either compare with other people or what might happen to you in the future or what happened to you in the past. And that'll be enough to set the mind spinning. Certainly, it's very, very difficult to overrate the importance of how uh, the inner voiceover of the mind, that, that commentator, what the neuroscientist Michael Gazzaniga calls the interpreter, the part of the brain that turns every experience of life into a story that we repeat, how dare they, what's the matter with me, how could I possibly uh, do that again, uh, why me, the narrator just essentially creates so much of not just the way we interpret, but the entire takeaway that at least half of the, the cerebral hemisphere, the left hemisphere, uh, takes away from experience. And it's very, very important. To give you an example, I'll just give you some obvious examples. If there was an, uh, an advertisement with just the picture of an owl, right? Just there's an owl. And right, if the headline beneath it said either um, nighttime predator or endangered species, that single difference of phrase would make you relate to the image of the owl in an entirely different way. One headline would make you feel, oh... What a nice, that poor endangered owl. I want to take it home and protect it and care for it. On the other hand, nighttime predator would not really engender the same desires of wanting to take home the owl and, and uh, take care of its needs or, or join an owl preservation society. Um, of course, both statements are true, you know, but... The way we annotate experience completely changes the way we relate to experience. This is um, actually a significant field in clinical psychology. A very important psychologist named Ulrich Eicher, uh, or Escher. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. I've only read it. Um, but his entire field of study has to do about studying how misleading headlines can completely alter the way people uh, take away uh, all the information they're presented in the news. Uh, he did this wonderful study where he took the exact same body copy story in a newspaper. And what the newspaper was a kind of a not very interesting story. What it was was essentially, if you want to look it up, there was um, overall, over a 10-year period in the place where he lived, I believe he's Australian, there was a diminishment of burglaries in his town. But over the last month, there was a slight uptick, right? So a 10-year downturn, but a one-month like slight uptick. So he wrote, he had the newspaper put out two different headlines. One that said, upturn in burglaries. The other said downturn in burglaries, and both were true. There was a recent uptick, but an overall downturn. And what his study found is that even when he would instruct people to read the body copy, which went into the entire historical context and 
what was happening recently, they would forget everything that didn't fit the headline. So he would have people read the story, and then if the headline was uptick, they would come away with feeling unsafe and believe that the town was becoming more and more dangerous, even though the, the news piece clearly said over and over that there had been an historical drop and that the trends were going down. So uh, to give you another anecdotal experience from my life, um, before, 12 years ago, I became an empowered Buddhist teacher. I actually uh, made my living in the ugly world of advertising. I was an art director. And um, part of the work would be to create these uh, websites and ads and put them together for a client. And then the client would test everything because that's part of advertising. They don't trust anybody. They test everything. They put it in front of market <laughs> research. And so one of the things they were very clear about is that it, don't bother putting in the actual body copy beneath an ad. They just wanted the headline and the image. And I once asked, and they said, we found out that nobody ever remembers anything. They just remember the big words and the main image and nothing else. You could put We've even accidentally, one guy said to me, we've even accidentally had, you know, lorem ipsum copy go out and nobody would notice because the only thing they remember is the headline and the image. So the way we add the story to our experience, when you're in a day surrounded by sensations and people and actions and events, the story that we tell is actually not just a part or in any way just a commentary it's actually creating the experience itself when we have those days when we wake up in the wrong side of the bed as the saying goes then all we will see and all we will take in will be you know the pigeon shitting and the fights on the streets, and if we wake up on the good side and we feel in love, then we will walk around the world and filter in terms of the birth and beauty in nature. And of course, everything is both is always happening at the same time. So the inner chatter forms essentially serves three purposes. One, we internalize our caretakers at a very young age, that's what creates the inner chatter, the self-regulating voices of our parents, the words where the parents say, don't run in the hallway, don't pull the cat's tail, don't eat the cookie, don't do this, don't do that. Shockingly enough, and this always depresses me when I uh, read this study by Vygotsky, that's where the origin of our inner self-talk is and the words that our parents said to us. So in other words, I'm screwed, given the way my dad was. Um, the, uh, it serves a second purpose. The, the left hemispheric interpreter, which makes sense of the world around us and turns a flood of experience into a very simple story that makes us feel in control, makes us feel like we are authoring all of our actions, makes us feel more optimistic. And it also deflects us from awareness of the right hemisphere of the brain's emotional activations. The more we're caught up in self-condemning, self-worrying, self-critical, self-judgmental talk, the less we are 
actually aware of the core emotions that are expressing themselves in the body. And interestingly enough, finally, if you ever want to read a fascinating book, uh, the book Social by the neuroscientist Matthew, Matthew Lieberman did some fascinating studies where he had people think about themselves and he tried to figure out where self-talk comes from and he found, found that the, the only other time that the brain lights up in exactly the same way, the ventromedial and the amygdala and the language centers and uh, that whole circuit lights up, is when we listen to what other people say about us. So sadly, a lot of the inner ch chatter we hear is just repeating some of the emotionally resonant comments that other people have told about us, and we're trying to reconcile uh, our external experience with the messages we've heard from other people. That's a pretty depressing and dispiriting foundation of inner chatter, isn't it? Worrying about what other people think, of distracting us from our body and uh, a, an introjected version of our parents when they were the most regulating. Uh, interestingly enough, Lieberman also found out that when the default mode network, which is the part of your, the circuits of your brain that are activated when you think about yourself, they tend to, uh, when those are activated, they tend to take every um, physiological experience personally. So when we're thinking about ourselves, if suddenly we have a pain in the body or an emotional gut feeling or uh, an emotion such as loneliness, sadness, despair, grief, anxiety, embarrassment, guilt, whatever arises will take personally. That's my guilt, my loneliness, my despair, something's wrong with me, I'm feeling sad. On the other hand, if you practice embodied awareness and detach from the inner chatter from a while, if the exact same emotions and physiological sensations arise, you probably actually won't claim it as yours. You'll just view it as something that's happening and eternally, but you won't identify with it and believe it's yours uniquely. And let's be frank, I personally would rather think of my, my anger, my sadness, my fear, my loneliness as universal experiences rather than something that's completely endemic about me alone in the universe. So, um, Somatic awareness is what's known as bottom-up processing. Uh, it's one of the three ways we can help diminish inner chatter, especially negative self-talk. The first thing to do is to become aware of what is physically tight in the body. This is the core of the Buddha's four foundations of mindfulness. Whenever we note the mind is spinning out, the uh, thoughts about things we've done wrong, missed opportunities, comparing ourselves with others. Whenever we are just lost in thought about self, always the best practice is to bring awareness, find that clenched belly, that tight or hollow chest, that locked jaw, that strangling feeling in the throat, that tension in the forehead or that shallow breath, and be with it and connect with it, create a safe container, and then slowly over time relax the sensations. In so doing, we're reconnecting with the emotions that essentially all the inner chatter is trying to distract us from. Emotions are largely embodied. So if we do that, it's by far the most successful tool in deactivating self-negative chatter.
Just reconnect, find the tension, the contraction, the tightness in the muscles in the front of the body. Don't worry about the back. Your emotional circuits don't talk to you through your back. That's just stress. But emotions speak through the vagal vagus nerve, which run down the front of the body. So the second way, after bottom-up processing, is relational work, which means you find a friend. And you say, guess what my brain is telling me today? My mind is telling me that I'm a worthless failure, that everybody else is successful, and that somehow I've blown it, and that at 28, I'm too old to achieve anything of value, that uh, whatever the brain is telling us. And um, so uh, you tell a friend, and then you'll be surprised if they are empathetic and tolerant. They will hopefully uh, not uh, judge or try to make you feel alone or there's something wrong with you. They'll probably not and say, oh, yeah, I experience that all the time. And the moment you have that recognition that other people have very similar inner chatter, the relationship we have with inner chatter becomes less sticky. The more we are reminded of the transpersonal nature of internal experience, the less we identify it, the less we identify with it, the easier it is to detach. So simply finding a trustworthy friend saying, hey, I don't want you to tell me that I'm a terrific person, but just I just want you to listen to this, and if you can relate and if you've experienced any of this yourself, let me know. So here's what the old noggin is telling me today. Um, so that's the second. But I'd like to focus on the third set of processes for dealing with negative self-talk, and that is uh, top-down work, which means working directly with thoughts themselves rather than attending to the body or working with other people. So in the Buddhist canon, Atava Upadana, uh, self-beliefs, inner autobiography, talking in our heads about ourselves, is seen as a form of clinging. And clinging is essentially the way that we distract ourselves from the present experience and get lost in the inner world where we represent everything that's going on and try to figure it all out rather than stay present with what's going on. And uh, when we do that, we tend to make everything that we perceive tend to conform with pre-existing expectations. So the more we listen to self-talk, the more we tend to just label and file everything we're experiencing in terms of old familiar disappointments rather than to see present opportunities, to see each new challenging experience as it is. For example, if I wake up and I go to the mailbox and there's a bill and then I see the bill and then there's a story of, oh, God, how am I going to pay this, blah, 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 you know, why me, blah, 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 blah. then I'm not actually opening to the actual experience. I don't even know what's in the envelope. I don't even know, uh, I don't even take into account all of the opportunities and way to deal with it. I'm just filing it under a pre-digested abstract idea that this experience is bad. 
whenever it's funny whenever I get a phone call from my uh, teacher Noah uh, my first inclination is to to avoidance coping to not pick up the phone mm-hmm. and my stomach gets tight because it reminds me of when my dad would call me as a kid it's the only power relationship I have left <laughs> in my life and that idea of somebody who has any sort of I feel any sort of obligation to calling me up activates that that tightness and then the the inner chatter goes it can't be good it just can't <laughs> be good he's calling me up because he thinks I'm there's something I've done wrong or there's something he wants to get me to do that I won't want to do. But it just can't be good, so let's not pick up the phone. So just to pick up that phone, it always weighs like three <laughs> tons, even though it's just a smartphone. Um, of course, uh, another approach to working directly with inner chatter is to, if we recognize how powerful inner chatter is, um, we can at least use the power of the way we, we tell stories about our lives strategically. If we can't pull our attention away from the chatter, if we are stuck listening to it, we can at least be the author of our own lives rather than wait for uh, the worst, most old, fearful, introjected, negative parent voice in the mind to tell us that we're essentially blowing it. We can actually not just, as they say, speak victimese. You like that? Victimese? Never mind. Uh, <laughs> victimese is the why me, this is uh, unfair, uh, I've had it too hard. It's a companion with self-judgment. They go hand in hand, everywhere together. They alternate. I've blown it with I'm being treated unfairly. And so, generally, if we have to listen to these inner voices, sometimes what we can do is what's known as re-narrating. Essentially taking control of the story and forcing the mind to uh, label and narrate experience in a way that is uh, either empowering or uh, writes a story that doesn't uh, compare us in a negative way with others, to literally force ourselves to explore a different way to narrate each event in our lives. So from the perspective of, you know, questioning, is there nothing good about the present situation I'm in. What would what will I think about this in five years' time? Is there any opportunity in this situation? How can I grow from this? Those kind of reflections. And then spinning the story, like if you've ever seen Republicans, they have an amazing ability <laughs> to spin the unspinnable and make it seem as if something good has happened. Well, your brain is nowhere near like what they're putting in front of us, so you can actually spin just a little bit of fear and a little bit of negativity into a positive, empowering story where there's still opportunities. Um, It might sound like, but this is a phony exercise, but actually 
I guarantee you the negative worrying, self-disparaging, comparing ourselves with other uh, stories we add to experience are just as arbitrary. They're absolutely just as arbitrary as creating a positive or at least a, an opportunistic spin on each experience. The only difference is that we're used to believing all the negative self-talk. We're used to giving it credence because very often it mirrors some of the emotionally painful words we heard early on in childhood. So they have resonance, but they're actually no more valid than anything else. And so adding different stories reminds us, at the very least, that every story we add to experience, every way we annotate our life, is arbitrary. Finally, there is uh, a wonderful practice, and uh, we have three minutes, so I'm going to do it in three minutes. Uh, close our eyes for a moment. This is a favorite. And there's a court case going on now in your mind. And first of speaking to the jury, making their closing remarks is the inner prosecutor. And the inner prosecutor's job is to tell awareness why we are stupid, why we are failing in life, why we are guilty of all kinds of crimes of uh, lethargy or uh, lack of achievement or whatever it is. So just think of, bring to mind the three most constant continuous self-criticisms that you lay, that you launch in your direction. The three most constant things you tell yourself. For me, in addition to being bald and not very attractive, that's an inevitable one. But then there's always guilt over not being of greater service or helping more people. And there's self-condemnation about laziness and so forth. So thank the prosecutor and then bring to mind a really compassionate inner defense attorney, and this should look like somebody who really cares about you, who really has expressed any sense of kindness or compassion or care, and visualize this defense attorney telling the jury, which is your awareness, three positive attributes about yourself. Three reasons why you're not guilty, why you're not a bad person, why you are not worthy of condemnation, why you're not doing life wrong. Three any kinds of things, things that come to mind as three reasons that your inner defense attorney, your friend, your admirer would use to your defense. And now thanking the uh, in 
defense attorney who rallied to your behalf. And when you're ready, keeping in mind the three negatives and the three positives, open your eyes. Now, I'm not a mind reader, but in most of the cases of the people in this room, the three negatives were based on arbitrary socializing shoulds, whereas the three positives that were the words of your inner defense attorney were based on actual behaviors in your life. So the way we condemn ourselves is based on abstract social <coughs> expectations about beliefs about the way we were informed people should be. They're in, in other words, based on shoulds. But the, crit, the defenses that you rallied on were based on the actualities of your life. You probably didn't say, well, all people deserve happiness and I do too. You probably thought about actual things that you do to help people or skills that you've developed that have made your life enriching. It's worth remembering that. The inner negative self-talk tends to rely almost wholly on what's called the superego, the parts of the brain that really don't care how hard your life is or how much you're accomplishing. They tend to essentially, the superego just tends to be this ongoing tape recorder that says you should do better, you should be accomplishing more, you should be achieving more. It's not a voice that's ever meant to be satisfied. It's just a voice that's there to continually egg you on so that you don't ever find yourself able to relax and ever feel good about yourself. Because during the socializing period of our lives, that's generally not a message that too many caretakers told us. Just relax. You're good enough exactly as you are. They might have sent it through their empathetic expressions, but they probably didn't tell us that enough or didn't emotionally register. So anyway, I hope there was something worthwhile in tonight's talk. I really thank you for listening, and uh, we have time for a few questions before...